Okay, we are live. I am live. I'm going to pick up where I left off last time. We are on book one. How do they call it? Book one, section one. Book one, section two, chapter two, the nature of God in itself. So book one, section two, chapter two, the nature of God in itself. That's where we're picking up today. The Unity and Trinity of God, Chapter 2, The Nature of God in Itself, Section 8, The Biblical Names of God. As the nature of God cannot be adequately conceived in the mind, it cannot be expressed in a perfectly corresponding name. Hence, the fathers designate God as, quote, unnameable and inexpressible and, quote, nameless. The manifold names which Holy Writ applies to God express more the operations than the nature of God. According to the various operations, God can be called by various names, for which reason Pseudo-Dionysius calls him the, quote, many-named, or the, quote, all-named. There's some references given there if you want to follow those up. Following Sheban, the seven holy names of the Old Testament may be divided into three groups. First, the first of which determines the relation of God to the world and to mankind. Then in parenthesis, it gives examples. El, the God, one of the names of God in the Old Testament. El equals the strong, the powerful. Elohim equals he who possesses the fullness of power. Very similar meaning. Adonai means Lord, commander, or judge. End of parenthesis. The second group designates more the intrinsic perfections of God. Then in parenthesis we have examples. Shaddai, the mighty one. El John, the highest and Kadosh, the holy. And I think they forgot to close the parenthesis there, but continuing on. The third group comprehends the proper name and the essential name, Yahweh. I am. The real name of the true God is Yahweh. It is linguistically derived from Hawa, a related form of Hajj, to be. It means he is. The Septuagint renders the form AJ, I am, or Asher, AJ, the I am, by which God designates himself, by which God designates himself in, in Exodus 3.14, by O-On, the being one. While it regularly paraphrases the form Yahweh by the expression Kyrios, Lord, which was a current Greek designation for God. 
God himself revealed his name to Moses when he, in answer to the question as to his name, replied, quote, I am who am. A.J. Asher A.J. Quote, you shall say to the children of Israel, He who is hath sent me to you. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, hath sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. End quote. That from Exodus 3.14 and following. According to Exodus 6.3, God himself revealed himself in the first instance to Moses by his proper name of Yahweh, while he appeared to the patri patriarchs as El Shaddai. The biblical narrator used the name Yahweh, foreseeing the latter, the later revelation, even in the story of paradise, and puts it into the history of the patriarchs, even to, even into the mouths of the fathers, and of God Himself. Genesis fifteen, two seven. In agreement with this, Genesis four twenty six, quote, "This man began to call upon the name of the Lord." End quote. Is not to be understood as an invocation of the name of God in virtue of the use of the word Yahweh, but as a general adoration of God. In the pre-Mosaic era, the name Yahweh cannot with certainty be established either within or without Israel. The New Testament takes over the Old Testament designations of God as found in the Septuagint and makes the appellation Father, which occurs only in a few places in the Old Testament, the center of the Christian revelation. The appellation of Father. Continuing, section 9, the physical and metaphysical nature of God. 1. The physical essence of God. The physical essence of God is the totality of the divine perfections which are fully, which are factually identical among themselves. Compare the enumeration of the divine attributes by the Fourth Lateran Council and the Vatican Council. And you can see Denzinger references for that. Interesting that they speak of a physical nature of God, when God is not material. So the attributes of God are called physical in this book. I'll have to understand how that's possible. It must be a technical sense of the word physical that eludes me. Two, the metaphysical nature of God. The metaphysical nature of God is the basic determining factor of the divine essence. According to our analogical conception, it is the fundamental note of the deity which distinguishes it from all created things and which is the source and origin of all other divine perfections. Various opinions have been advanced on this point. A. The nominalists wrongly place the metaphysical essence of God in the sum of all his perfections, cumulus omnium perfectonium, and thus equate the physical and the metaphysical essence. B. The Scotists see the metaphysical essence of God in his radical infinity, that is, in that quality by which God possesses all perfections, in infinite measure. This view, however, leaves unsolved the question of the final basis of the of the infinity. Infinity is a mode of being only, not the metaphysical essence itself. C. Many Thomists would find the metaphysical essence of God in his absolute intellectuality, which they defined either as absolute spirituality or as formal intellectuality. 
Against both opinions, the objection is made that they do not give the ultimate root of all perfections, but a characteristic derived therefrom. Absolute spirit being implies absolute being. Intelligere subsistens presupposes esse subsistens. D. The opinion best founded in scripture and tradition is that the metaphysical essence of God consists in this, that it is subsistent being. Ipsum esse subsistens. As distinct from created things which have received being from another being. Esse participatum. God has his being of himself and through himself by virtue of his own perfection of essence. God is being itself, the absolute being, the subsisting being. In God, essence and existence coincide. The concept of absolute being excludes all non-being and all merely potential being. Consequently, God is pure act without any admixture of potentiality. This opinion, which follows the Thomistic definition, is held by many theologians who conceive the metaphysical essence of God to be a seity, which, however, is not to be understood in the negative sense of not having been made, or in being independent of a cause, since this is only a mode of being, but in the positive sense of self-actualization. So, aseity is not to be understood in the negative sense of not having been made or in being independent of a cause, since this is only a mode of being, but rather aseity is to be understood in the positive sense of self-actualization. Interesting. Foundation. <clears throat> A. In Exodus 3.14 and following, God reveals his proper name and his essential name. Quote, I am who I am, end quote. That is, I am he whose essence is expressed in the words, I am. God is therefore purely and simply being. He who is, O own. His essence is being. Israel, however, did not yet grasp the full sense of the revelation vouchsafed to it. It understood the nature of Yahweh as he who is always, the constant, the true, the helper as he had shown himself to be in the history of Israel. See, for example, Israel, uh, Isaiah 43, 11. Later scriptural texts express the absolute being of God by designating Yahweh as the first and last, as the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end. He who is, who was, and who shall come. bunch of references are given there. Wisdom 13.1 calls God, as does Exodus 3.14, he who is. Ton onta, that's where you get the word ontology, ontological, from onta, from the Greek. Ton just means the. And contrasts him with the visible things which have received being from him. The characteristic of absolute the characteristic of absolute being, expressed in the name Yahweh, distinguishes God from all non-living beings. 
compare Isaiah 42.8. Quote, I am the Lord. This is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven things. End quote. B. The, the patristic writers and the schoolmen accept the name of the divine essence given in Exodus 3.14 and regard absolute being as that concept by which we state the essence of God most fundamentally. St. Hilarius, full of wonderment at the divine self-designation, says, excuse me, quote, nothing can be conceived which is more appropriate to God than being, end quote. St. Gregory Nanzianzus remarks on Exodus 3.14, quote, God was always, is, and will always be, or rather, he is always, for was and will be are divisions of our time and of nature, which is in constant flow. But he is the constant being. And thus he called himself when he answered Moses on the mountain. And thus he called himself when he was answered on the mountain. When he answered Moses on the mountain. He holds sealed off in himself the whole fullness of being, which has neither a beginning nor an end, like an endless and boundless ocean of being, transcending every notion of time and created nature. End quote. St. Augustine, referring to Exodus 3.14, says that God has called himself the very being, ipsum esse. He alone is the immutable being, which is the true being. St. John Damascene remarks that the name He Who Is, O On, is the most appropriate of all the divine names. St. Bernard says, one may, quote, one may call God good or great, or blessed, or wise, or whatever one will. All is contained in the phrase, est, he is, end quote. St. Thomas teaches, quote, As only in God is essence, one with existence, he sees in the name, he who is, the appropriate, proper name of God. So I didn't give you the quote because it was in Latin. Cuius Dei... Okay, so I'll say that again. St. Thomas teaches, quote, Cuius essentia est ipsum sum esse, end quote. As only God is essence, as only God is essence one with existence, he sees in the name, he who, he who is the appropriate proper name of God, Summa Theologica. C. The concept of ipsum esse subsistens, in the positive sense, fulfills all conditions necessary for the determination of the metaphysical essence of God. D. Ipsum esse subsistens does not designate a mere mode of being, but that perfection which, according to our analogical thinking, is fundamental to God and which is the summing up of his essence. Compare, compare the proofs of God which proceed from esse participatum, participated being, to subsistent being. Uh, a, B, C, D, and now we're supposed to have E, but they put beta for some reason. Continuing with these notes here. Ipsum esse subsistens distinguishes God fundamentally from all created things, which only possess being, but which are not being itself. The being of created things is a limited being, and in comparison with the being of God is more it is more non-being than being. This is why I often say that I believe that uh, I believe in the existence of God even above my own. 
existence. It's more credible. It's more credible to believe in God and God's existence than to believe in myself, my own existence. Continuing, quote, they cannot be compared with him because they are from him, but compared with him they are not, because the true being is an immutable being, and that he is alone, and that is he alone. End quote, that from St. Augustine. Ipsum esse subsistens also distinguishes God from abstract or general being. For the latter is of such a nature that it has not any objective reality, any objective reality, without the addition of further characteristics. While the absolute divine being is such that nothing can be added to it, abstract being is the poorest concept in point of content, while absolute being is the richest. Compare Saint Thomas. I give the reference there. Ipsum esse subsistens is the root from which all the other divine perfections may logically be derived. As God is the absolute being, he must contain in himself all the perfections of being. And then a reference and citation is given from the Summa. Continuing now, Appendix. Hermann Schell, who died in 1906, sought to give the concept of the divine aseity a richer content by extending the idea of, causa of causation to God, and formulated the dictum Deus est causa sui, God, his, God is his own cause. He claimed that aseity is to be conceived as self-causation, self-realization, self-inauguration of the divine essence. God, according to him, is not the fullness of being, as the schoolmen asserted, but the fullness of activity and of life. Schell's concept of God, which goes back to Platonic and Neoplatonic ideas, contradicts the principle of causality, according to which all that is moved must be moved by another thing, as well as the principle of contradiction, on which the principle of causality is based. For an essence which causes itself must have been effective before its existence, that is, be and not be. God is not causa sui, but ratio sui, that is, he has the reason of his existence in himself. In a wider and improper sense, following the precedent of St. Jerome, individual schoolmen apply the concept causa sui to God. St. Augustine, re Augustine rejected the idea of the divine self-origination and with it self-causation. See his work on the Holy Trinity. And that is Latin there, which is quoted as, Nothing is the cause of itself, since that implies that it had existed prior to itself, which is impossible. Very interesting. This is why I always draw on the principle of sufficient reason, which says everything has its reason from another being or from itself. And so the existence of God does not violate the PSR, the principle of sufficient reason. Now, if the principle of sufficient causation were applied, then God's existence would seem to be at odds with the principle of sufficient causation. If we were to make a substitution of the notion of reason with, this, with the notion of causation. But the principle of sufficient reason is called the principle of sufficient reason because the self-existent being whose essence is existence is uncaused. 
So we can't speak of causality bringing about God. We can speak about the reasons in God for his existence, his self-existence. That's a point that atheists don't seem to understand. Moving on now, the unity and trinity of God, section three. So this is book one, section three, the attributes or the qualities of God. Section 10, the attributes of God in general. One, concept, the attributes or properties of God are perfections which, according to our analogical mode of thinking, proceed from the metaphysical substance of God and belong to it. Hence, we only know being in the we only know being of the absolutely simple divine substance in part. See 1 Corinthians 13, 9, for example. That is to say, in a multiplicity in a multiplicity of inadequate concepts by which we know individual perfections of God truly but inadequately. It's a very important paragraph. Two, difference between the attributes and the essence of God. This is a, this is a dogma, a de fide dogma, the highest grade of certainty of all the dogmas. The divine attributes are really identical among themselves and with the divine essence. This is a dogma I cite frequently in my discussions with atheists. If you don't understand that, then you will struggle to be to uh, understand monotheism or classical theism. Continuing with the text, the reason lies in the absolute simplicity of God. The acceptance of a real distinction, distinctio realis, would lead to acceptance of a composition in God and with that to a dissolution of the Godhead. In the year 1148, a synod at Reims in the presence of Pope Eugene III, condemned on the insistence of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, the doctrine of Gilbert of Poitiers, who, according to the accusation of his opponents, posited a real distinction between God and Godhead, Deus Divinitas, between the divine persons and their properties, Pater and Paternitas and according to the accounts of his opponents, also between the divine essence and the divine attributes. This accusation can hardly be demonstrated from Gilbert's writings. Against this doctrine, the Synod asserted the factual identity of God with the Godhead, that is, with the divine nature and the persons, as well, of, as, well as of God and his attributes. The Latin is given, you can read it if you're able. In English, we believe and confess that the divine nature in itself is identical with God, nor in any way consonant with Catholic doctrine can we deny that the divinity is God and God is the divinity. We believe that God is wise by that wisdom which is God himself, that God is great by that greatness which is God himself. The Union Council of Florence explained in the Decretum Pro Jacobitis, quote, in God all is one, where an opposition of relation does not exist. End quote. And we'll see later the relations in God. 
I gave a little spoiler in episode zero when I did the front matter and the back, the back matter. We have one god, two generations, three persons, four relations. This is to be found on page 68 of his book. You've got the intellectual generation of the Son from the Father and the volitional spiration of the Holy Ghost from the Father and the Son. The generation is, uh, there's an active and a passive generation and there's an active and a passive spiration. So we'll see that when we get to page 68. Right now we are on page 28. <clears throat> Continuing. In the Greek church, the 14th century mystic quietistic sect of the Hesychasts or Palamites, so-called after the monk Gregory Palamas, taught a real distinction between the divine essence, usia, and the divine efficacy or the divine attributes, energia. Energia. I guess it's energia. Divine energies, I guess you could say. In orthodoxy, in my readings of orthodoxy, they emphasize this. While the former was claimed to be unknowable, the latter was claimed to be vouchsafed to humanity in a condition of cont contemplative prayer. Isihia. I guess that's the hesychasts. Isihia. Through an uncreated divine light called Tabor light. With this, they distinguished a higher and a lower and invisible and a visible side of the Godhead. Holy Scripture indicates the identity of the essence and the attributes of God when it says, quote, God is charity. John 4, 8. It's the principle of identity at work there. God is charity. The principle of equivalence. Matter is energy and God is charity. Quote, what God has, that he is. End quote. That from the City of God, St. Augustine. Gilbert's opponent summed up the ecclesiastical doctrine advanced against his error in the words attributed to St. Augustine. Quid quid in Deo est Deus est. Excuse me. Again, the distinction is not a mere mental distinction as the eunomians in the 4th and 5th centuries and the nominalists in later medieval times taught. According to the eunomians, the eunomians, all names and attributes of God are synonyms with express nothing other than agenesi, ingeneratedness, in which we apparently adequately comprehend the essence of God. According to the nominalists, the distinguishing of several qualities has no basis in the divine essence itself, but only in the various operations of God. A distinction connoting effects. Against the acceptance of a mere logical distinction, there is the fact that Holy Scripture refers to many of the attributes of God. To explain these away as mere synonyms is incompatible with the dignity of Holy Writ. Again, the perfections appearing in the works of God presuppose that God, as their originator himself, possesses them. 
The perfections appearing in the works of God presuppose that God, as their originator, himself possesses them. God is not good because he does good, but he does good because he himself is good. According to the Scotists, this is note C, according to the Scotists, the difference between God and his attributes is formal, distinctio formalis. A formal difference lies between a real and a purely mental difference, but the acceptance of the notion of various formalities of being which are present in God previous to and independent of our thinking is contrary to the absolute simplicity of the divine substance. According to the general teaching, the different, this is note D, according to the general teaching, the difference is to be conceived as a virtual difference, distinctio virtualis, or rationis, rationate, sive cum fundamento in re, a virtual distinction, a distinction of ratiotinative reason with a foundation in reality. The distinguishing of many attributes in God has a factual basis in the infinite fullness of the divine being. Even if God's nature is in itself absolutely simple, yet we can only know it in a multiplicity of concepts. And then we're to compare that with something in the Summa. Although the names attributed to God signify the same reality, yet because they signify it under many and diverse aspects, they are not synonymous. End of parenthesis. The assumed virtual difference is to be more exactly determined as distinctio virtualis minor, since one divine perfection implicitly includes the other. I'm going to need to reread all of this section and meditate on it because it's very rich and hairy. Moving on, number three, classification. Number three, classification. The divine attributes are classified into A, negative and positive, <clears throat> that is to say infinite, negative and positive, okay, so <clears throat> three, classification, the divine attributes are to be classified into A, negative and positive, they give as, as examples infinite and power, infinite means not finite, that's why it's a negative, classification. B, incommunicable and communicable. And as examples they give, ingeneratedness and goodness. Excuse me. C, absolute and relative. As examples they give, holiness and mercifulness. D, attributes of being and of being active also quiescent and active attributes. And ex examples they give some simplicity and omniscience. Moving on now, <clears throat> chapter one, the attributes of the divine being, section 11. The absolute perfection of God, that is 
perfect, in which nothing is lacking, which according to its nature it should possess. Reference to the Summa. That is absolutely perfect, which unites in itself all possible excellences and excludes all deficiencies. That is relatively perfect, which has a finite nature and possesses all the advantages corresponding to this nature. Here we have a dogma. God is absolutely perfect. This is a de fide dogma, the highest grade of certainty. The Vatican Council teaches that God is infinite in every perfection. Compare Matthew 5, 48, quote, Be ye therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, end quote. Holy Writ indirectly expresses the absolute perfection of God by stressing his self-sufficiency and his independence of all other substance. See, for example, Romans 11, 34 and following, Isaiah 40, 13 and following, Acts 17, 24 and following. And teaches that God contains in himself all perfections. Ecclesiasticus 43.29 Quote, He is all. Topan estin aftos. Topan estin aftos. Pan, obviously, meaning all. Aftos means this. To means the. Estin must mean the verb to be. Topan estin aftos. Compare Romans 11.36, Psalm 93.9. The fathers base the absolute perfection of God on the infinite fullness of being of God. They represent God's perfection as an essential universal perfection which transcends all perfection. Saint Irenaeus says, quote, God is perfect in everything, like unto himself, all light, all reason, all essence, and the source of all goodness, end quote. Saint John of Damascus teaches, quote, the divine essence is perfect, is in no way deficient in goodness, in wisdom, and in power. It is without beginning, without end, eternal, boundless, in short, absolutely perfect, end quote. And then a reference is given for uh, Pseudo Dionysius, if you want to look that up. St. Thomas bases the absolute perfection of God speculatively on the fact that God, as the first cause of all created things, virtually contains in himself all the perfections of the created, and that he, as the ipsum esse subsistens, includes in himself eminently every being and thus every perfection. And then there's reference to the Summa. In regard to the attribution of God of perfections which are in creatures, the saying is valid. The pure perfections are in God for formaliter and eminenter, formally and eminently, the mixed virtualiter and eminenter, virtually and eminently. I'll read that again. In regard to the attribution of, <laughs> in regard to the attribution to God of perfections which are in creatures, the saying is valid. The, the pure perfections are in God, formal, formally and eminently. The mixed virtually and eminently. Section 12. God's infinity. That is infinite which has no end, no bound. Compare the Summa. The finite is distinguished, excuse me, the infinite is distinguished according to potentiality. 
and according to actuality. The, the potentially infinite can be multiplied infinitely, but in reality it is finite and limited. On account of the indefiniteness of the limits, it is also called indefinitum. Further, one distinguishes between the relative and the absolute infinite. The former is infinite in a definite connection, for example, duration. The latter is infinite in every respect. So there's relative, abs uh, there's relative infinite and an absolute infinite. These notions come up when I discuss God with atheists. So it's good to brush up on this stuff. Here we have a dogma. God is actually infinite in every perfection. It's a de fide dogma. God is actually infinite in every perfection. So this actual infinity gets discussed, gets discussed uh, when I debate atheists online. The Vatican Council says of God that in reason and will and in every perfection he is infinite. Compare Psalm 146.5, of his wisdom there is no measure, and, unquote. and Psalm 144.3, of his greatness there is no end. end quote. The Septuagint and the Vulgate render that infinite. The fathers call God infinite, boundless, uncircumscribed. Apiros a aoristos <coughs> aoristos aperigraptos aperigraptos infinitus incircumscriptus. According to Gregory of Nyssa, God is, quote, in every way without limit, as he is, quote, according to his nature boundless, he cannot be comprehended in a human concept. Speculatively, the absolute infinity of God may be based on the concept of the ipsum esse subsistence, as God does not originate from another being, and as he is in no wise composed of parts, there exists in him no basis for a limitation of his being. There's a citation given for the Summa if you want to look that up. Section 13, God's Simplicity. That is simple which is not composed, and on that account also not divisible. The composition is a physical one when a thing is composed of parts which are really distinct from one another, whether substantially, material, material in form, body and soul, or accidentally, substance and accidents. The composition is a metaphysical one when a thing is composed of logical or metaphysical parts. For example, determinations of being such as potency and act, or genus and specific difference. <clears throat> Here we have a dogma. God is absolutely simple. This is a de fide dogma. God is absolutely simple. The Fourth Lateran Council and the Vatican Council teach that God is an absolutely simple substance or nature. Substantia seu natura simplex omnino. 
The expression simplex omnino asserts that which gar with regards to God. <clears throat> the expression simplex omnino asserts that with regard to God, any kind of composition, whether physical or metaphysical, is out of the question. From this it follows that one, God is a pure spirit, that is, God is neither a body nor a composition of body and spirit. The Old Testament, it is true, represents God in a visible human form by the employment of many anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. Anthropopathisms or apopathisms? Not sure. I'm not familiar with that word. Anthropopathisms? Pathisms, I guess that's uh, sympathies and stuff like that. Indirectly, however, it expresses God's spirituality by representing him as supreme over matter and as the ruler over matter, the ruler of matter. Men, in distinction to God, are often called flesh. The New Testament designates God explicitly a spirit. So we have John 4, 24, quote, God is a spirit, end quote. And 2 Corinthians 3.17, quote, the Lord is a spirit, end quote. The viewpoint of the audience or anthropomorphists who, in a false interpretation of Genesis 1.26, held God to be a psychophysical being, as men are, was rejected by the fathers as a foolish heresy, stultissima heresis, the most foolish of heresies, says St. Jerome. Tertullian, under Stoic influence and starting from the assumption that everything actual is corporeal, corporeal, ascribes to the spiritual essences, to God and to the soul, a certain corporality. Rumor has it that's what the Mormons do too. So here we have some Latin by Tertullian and the English follows. Speculatively, the immaterial... Uh, Speculatively, I don't know, I, I guess this is, they don't give the English, so it's just continuing. The author is just continuing. Speculatively, the immateriality of God is implied by his pure actuality. Since there exists in God no potency, and since for matter potentiality is essential, there can therefore be no matter in God. And the reference is given to the Summa. Heavy reliance on... St. Thomas Aquinas is Summa Theologica, as you can see. <clears throat> hmm. Continuing with number two. God is an absolutely simple spirit. That is, in God there is no composition of any kind, of substance or accidents, of essence and existence, of nature and person, of power and activity, of passivity and activity, of genus and specific difference. Holy Writ indicates the absolute simplicity of God when it equates the essence of God with his attributes. Compare, for example, 1 John 4, 8. Quote, God is charity. Or John 14, 6. Quote, I am the way, the truth, and the life. End quote. St. Augustine says of the divine nature, quote, it is called simple because it is that which it has except that which is said of one person in relation to the other, end quote, that from the city of God. 
excuse me, speculatively, the absolute simplicity of God may be derived from his pure actuality. Pure act is incompatible with any kind of composition, for the composed thing comes later than the composing parts, and is dependent on these. Further, a composed thing presupposes an origin, which brings the parts together, and thus the parts are in potency to the whole. The existence of the virtual differences between the essence and the attributes of God and between the attributes themselves does not controvert the absolute simplicity of God, because the individual attributes do not des designate parts of the divine essence, but the whole divine essence, although from different points of view. This all merits a lot of deep meditation. <clears throat> One of the reasons I'm doing this reading, laborious as it is, and as crappy a reader as I am, is because I can edit it in audio form and listen to it in the future to digest the parts that I'm interested in, the parts that I find uh, tricky and difficult. So it's a worthwhile endeavor for me. Hope you're benefiting from it too, some small way. Moving on now, section 14, God's unicity. Here we have a dogma. There is only one God. This is a de fide dogma. There is only one God. Most of the symbols of the faith, that is to say creeds, most of the symbols of the faith expressly teach the unicity of God. The Nicene Constantinople symbol declares, Credo in unum deum, I believe in one God. The Fourth Lateran Council, 1215, declares, Unus solus est verus Deus, the true God is one alone. Opposed to this basic Christian dogma are heathen polytheism and Gnostic Manichaean dualism, which posits, which posits several eternal principles. It is a basic doctrine of the Old Testament and of the New Testament revelation that there is only one God, Deuteronomy 6.4 and Mark 12.29, quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one Lord, end quote. St. Paul, the apostle of the heathens, insistently stresses against heathen polytheism the necessity of belief in the one God. 1 Corinthians 8.4, We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. End quote. I hope my, my Muslim brothers and sisters understand that. We are a truly monotheistic religion. The heathen gods are not true gods. I would have put a lowercase god on the... Whenever I pluralize god, I put a small g so I know it's the demons we're talking about. The heathen gods are not true gods, but lies and vanity. See Jeremiah 16, 19. And nothingness. See Psalm 95, 5. You can also compare Wisdom 13 to 15. Against the Gnostic Manichaean dualism, which traces all evils in the world to an evil principle, Holy Script 
teaches that natural evil or metaphysical imperfections originate from God's decree, but that moral evil has its basis in the misuse of freedom. So, I always emphasize that moral evil has its basis in the misuse of freedom. You can see Romans 5.12 for that. You can just think about it and you can come to the same conclusion. But this other notion that natural evil or metaphysical imperfections originate from God's decree. I see. Okay, so... Uh, I'm not sure. I need to go and think about this because I'm not sure how God decrees natural evil. But the other word they're using for natural evil is metaphysical imperfection. Metaphysical imperfection. So I have a human nature. That nature is good because God created it. But are there metaphysical imperfections? in my nature that we could call a natural evil. This I need to look into because God cannot be the source of any evil. I don't see how God can be the author of any evil, including a natural evil or a metaphysical imperfection. I'll have to uh, find out what this book is teaching about that. The Father's the Father's based God's unicity on his absolute perfection and on the unity of the world order and defend it against the heathens, the Gnostics, and the Manichaeans. So the unity the unity of the world order, I would just say this is, uh, we live in a well-ordered cosmos. That's what cosmos means, is well-ordered universe. And the fact that it's well-ordered allows us to do science. I emphasize this with uh, the atheists when I'm discussing uh, God and science and these sorts of things. Tertullian writes against Marcion, quote, that which shall be valid as the highest greatness, that must stand unique and must have no equal in order not to cease to be the highest essence. But as God is the supreme essence, our ecclesiastical truth has with justice declared, if God is not one, then there is no God, end quote. Compare Pastor Herme, Herm I don't know who that is. St. Irenaeus and uh, Tertullian. There are several references given here. St. John of Damascus, etc. You can look those up if you're interested. St. Thomas speculatively derives the unicity of God from his simplicity, from the infinity of his perfections, and from the unity of the world. The references given to the Summa there. The history of comparative religion shows that religious development did not proceed from polytheism to monotheism, but on the contrary, from monotheism to poly polytheism. Interesting that atheists don't like hearing that, obviously. You can compare Romans 1.18 and following. Again, it is not demonstrable that Yahweh, up to the time of the prophets, was merely the national god of the people of Israel, so that in spite of the veneration of a single god, the belief in the existence of several gods was firmly adhered to, henotheism. Quote, it is not the national god which has become a world god, but the world god enter, entered on Sinai into a covenant 
of association with Israel. That from that citation from E. Celt, Biblical Realexicon. Yeah, we often hear about the henotheism of the uh, of the Jews, or well, they weren't Jews at that time, but the chosen people. Even I even have Catholic Bibles, ostensibly Catholic Bibles, with footnotes talking about that. But many of the footnotes are, uh, well, I mean, none of the footnotes are protected. They're not infallible footnotes, so they're. They're prone to error, and they're, they can be rife with uh, false teachings, anti-Catholic teachings. Section 15, God's truth. Excuse me. One distinguishes an ontological, a logical, and a moral truth. Veritas in essendo, in cognoscendo, in dicendo, et agendo, truth in being, in knowing, in saying, in acting. One, God's ontological truth. Ontological truth, or truth of things, consists in the agreement of a thing with its idea. It is the being of the things themselves insofar as it is knowable. Being and truth are convertible terms. Ends et verum convertuntur. And here we have a dogma. The one God is, in the ontological sense, the true God. This uh, is a defide dogma. The one God is, in the ontological sense, the true God. The Fourth Lateran and the Vatican Council designate God as a true God, Deus Verus, because he alone fully corresponds to the idea of God. Some references are given there, if you want to look those up. God as ipsum esse subsistens, subsistent being, is both being and truth itself. Aftalithia, like I said earlier, afto or afta means this, and alithia means truth, this truth. Aftalithia. God, as exemplary and efficient cause, gives all extra-divine things their nobility together with their being. Every created thing is the realization of a divine idea, which is, which is imitated in the created spirit. Insofar as all actual impossible things reflect the being of God, he is all truth. Panalithia. Panalithia. All truth. Pan. We think about... Uh, Many English words that start with pan means all. Panalithia, <clears throat> all truth, aletheia being truth. As God's being is elevated over all, crea all created being, so also his truth or knowability transcends the truth or knowability of created things. To this extent, he is the supreme truth. Hyperalithia, hyperalithia, hyperalithia. Hyper-truth. Hyper means hyper, supreme. Elithia means truth. Hyper-truth. Hyper-elithia. Two, God's logical truth. God's logical truth. 
Logical truth or truth of thought consists in the agreement of thought with things. The perfection of the truth of cognition is dependent on the perfection of the intellect. The perfection of the truth of cognition is dependent on the perfection of the intellect. And here we have another dogma. God possesses an infinite power of cognition. This is a de fide dogma. God possesses an infinite power of cognition. According to the teaching of Vatican Council, God is, quote, infinite in understanding, end quote. Intellectu infinitus. Psalm 146.5, quote, of his wisdom there is no end, end quote. <clears throat> Other references are given. The object of the divine knowing is the divine essence. <clears throat> in this way, God knows all created things in their origin because God is the origin of all created things. As in God, the subject of cognition, the object of cognition, and the act of cognition are identical, it follows that God is the absolute logical truth. Thus, every error is excluded from God, who cannot be conceived. Who, uh, excuse me, who cannot be deceived. God who cannot be deceived. Three, God's moral truth. Moral truth comprehends veracity. Veritas in dicendo or veracitas, truth in speech. And faithfulness, veritas in agendo or fidelitas, truth in action. Veracity is the agreement of speech with knowledge. Fidelity is agreement of action with speech. Here we have a dogma. God is absolute veracity. This is a de fide dogma. God is absolute veracity. The Vatican Council says of God that he cannot deceive. Infinite in every perfection. Holy Scripture bears witness to the veracity of God and to the incompatibility of a lie with his essence. John 8, 26, quote, He who has sent me is true, end quote. Titus 1, 2, quote, God who lieth not, end quote. And Hebrews 6, 18, quote, It is impossible for God to lie, end quote. Compare Romans 3, 5, uh, 3, 4, excuse me. B, God is absolutely faithful. This is a dogma, a de fide dogma. God is absolutely faithful. Psalm 144.13, quote, The Lord is faithful in all his works, end quote. 2 Timothy 2.13, quote, If we believe not, he continueth faithful. He cannot deny himself, end quote. Matthew 24.35, quote, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass, end quote. Compare St. Augustine, analysis of the Psalms. Divine truth can neither deceive nor be deceived. That by... St. Augustine. Section 16, God's goodness. God's ontological goodness. Number one, God's ontological goodness. As ontological truth is being in relation to intellect, so ontological goodness is being in relation to will. A thing is good in itself if it possesses the perfections corresponding to its nature. Relative good if it is suitable to perfect others. Good tends to communicate itself to others. And here we have a dogma. 
God is absolute ontological goodness in himself and in relation to others. This is a defide dogma. Good is absolute ontological goodness in himself and in relation to others. The Vatican Council teaches that God is infinite in every perfection and that in the creation he communicates his goodness to creatures. As ipsum esse subsistens, God is substantial goodness or goodness itself. Aftagathotis. Aftagathotis. Ipsa bonitas. As the origin of all created things and of all created goodness, God is the all good. Panagathotis. Panagathotis. Bonum universale. In virtue of the infinite chasm between the divine goodness and created goodness, God is the highest good. Hyperagathon athotis. Hyperagathotis sumum bonum. God is the substantial good. And in parentheses we have Luke 18, 19, quote, none is good but God alone, end quote. Creatures possess a derived communicated goodness only. In parenthesis, we have 1 Timothy 4, 4, quote, for every creature of God is good, end quote. The absolute ontological goodness of God is the basis of his infinite bliss. He's in knowing and loving himself as the supreme good, he is infinitely blissful in the possession and enjoyment of himself. Meditate on that. Powerful, powerful truth. God is absolute ontological goodness in relation to others, insofar as he is the causa exemplaris, efficiens et finalis, <clears throat> exemplary, efficient, and final cause of all created things. Romans 11.36, quote, for of him and by him and in him are all things, end quote. To the moral goodness, holiness of God. Moral goodness or holiness consists in freedom from sin and the purity of moral behavior. The ultimate basis of freedom from sin and of purity of morals lies in the agreement of the will with the moral norm. And here we have a dogma. God is absolute moral goodness or holiness. This is a defide dogma. God is absolute moral goodness or holiness. In Holy Mass, the liturgy praises God as the Holy One. Holy Writ bears witness to the holiness of God, both negative and positive. Deuteronomy 32, 4, quote, God is faithful and without any iniquity, end quote. Psalm 5, 5, <coughs> Psalm 5, 5, quote, Thou art not a God that willest iniquity, end quote. Psalm 76, 14, quote, Thy way, O God, is in the holy place, end quote. Isaiah 6, 3, quote, Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts, all the earth is full of his glory, end quote. The word holy, kadosh, exempted from profanity, expresses not only God's sublimity over all worldliness, objective holiness, but also his sublimity over all sinfulness, subjective holiness. As the comparison between God's holiness and the uncleanliness of the prophets shows. Uh, I th think the reference there is to Isaiah 6, 5 to 7. The twofold repetition of the word means that God is in the highest grade or absolutely holy.
The tremendous distance between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man is demonstrated in the term used by Isaiah and also in the Psalms. Psalm 70, 22, Quote, the Holy One of Israel, end quote. God is substantial holiness because his will is identical with the supreme moral norm. The sinless, sinlessness of God is therefore not merely a factual state of being free from sin, impecantia, but an intrinsic metaphysical impossibility of sinning, impeccabilitas. Three, God's benignity, benignitas. Here we have a dogma. God is absolute benignity. This is a defide dogma. God is absolute benignity. God's benignity reveals itself in that he bestows on created things countless gifts in the natural and supernatural order and thus permits them to participate in his goodness. Examples are given. Creation, preservation, providence, redemption, sanctification. And some references are given if you want to look those up. Appendix. God's beauty. God is absolute beauty. This is not presented as a dogma. It's just in the appendix. But there's a reference given to Denzinger if you want to look it up. God unites in himself in the most perfect manner the three requisites which, according to St. Thomas, belong to the concept of the beautiful. A. Integritas sive perfectio. God is absolutely perfect. B. Debita proportio sive consonte. God, in spite of his infinite fullness of being, is absolutely simple. C. Claritas. God, as a pure and absolutely simple spirit, is the clearest and brightest being. His beauty is a substantial beauty, which encompasses and infinitely transcends all the beauty of the created world. According to Wisdom 13, 3-5, from the beauty of the creation, one can conclude to the much greater beauty of the Creator. Psalm 95, 6, quote, Praise and beauty are before him, holiness and majesty in his sanctuary, end quote. And some references are given there, including from the Confessions of St. Augustine. Moving on, section 17, God's immutability. That is mutable, which goes from one condition to another. In consequence of the finite nature of its being, every creature is mutable. Here we have a dogma. God is absolutely immutable. This is a de fide dogma. God is absolutely immutable. The Fourth Lateran Council and the Vatican Council teach that God is immutable. <clears throat> Incommutabilis. Incommutabilis. Holy Scripture excludes all change from God. and positively ascribes to him absolute immutability. James 1.17, with whom there is no change nor shadow of alteration, unquote. Psalm 101.27 and following, quote, They, the heavens, shall perish, but thou remainest, and all of them shall grow old. And as a vestment thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art always the selfsame, and thy years shall not fail. End quote. A bunch of citations are given if you want to look those up. Malachi 3.6 indicates in the divine name of God the basis of the absolute immutability of God. Quote, For I am the Lord, 
and I change not, end quote. Life and activity are associated with God's immutability. Compare Wisdom 7, 24, 27. St. Augustine says, quote, God knows to act in restfulness and to rest in activity. He knows to rest in... God knows to act in restfulness and to rest in activity. Interesting. That from the City of God. Great book, by the way. The Fathers exclude all change from God. Tertullian stresses that the incarnation of the Logos involved no change or mutation in God. Quote, furthermore, God must be held to be unchangeable and immutable because he is eternal, end quote. Origen opposes, the Stoical, opposes to the Stoical teaching of God's corporality and his consequent mutability, the Christian teaching of God's absolute immutability. For this, he adduces proof from the Holy Writ, Psalm 101, 28, Malachi 3, 6. He also rejects the reproach, reproach. He also reject. He also rejects the reproach by Celsus that God's incarnation implied a change for the worse. Saint Augustine drives God's immutability from His absolute plenitude of being, which is expressed in the name Yahweh. Quote, "Being is a name which connotes immutability, for all that changes ceases to be what it was and commences to be what it was not. True being, genuine being." is possessed only by him who does not change." St. Thomas bases the absolute immutability of God on his pure actuality, on his absolute simplicity, and on his infinite perfection. Mutability includes potentiality, composition, and imperfection, and is thus irreconcilable with God. As the actus purus, the, the absolutely simple and absolutely perfect essence. Summa Theological 191, when God operates ad extra outside of himself, for example, in the creation of the world, he does not effect a new act, but he enters on a new realization of the eternal resolve of his divine will. The decree of creation is as eternal and immutable as the divine essence with which it is factually identical. Only its effect, the created world, is temporal and mutable. Compare with St. Augustine, the City of God. I think this is worth reading again because it, uh, it came up recently in my refutations of uh, the 500 so-called arguments against Christianity. So, St. Thomas basically absolutely... This is from St. Thomas, Summa Theological 191. I'm going to read it again. When God operates ad extra, that is to say outside of himself, for example, in the creation of the world, he does not effect a new act, but he enters on a new realization of the eternal resolve of his divine will. The decree of creation is as eternal and immutable as the divine essence with which it is factually identical. Only its effect, the created world, is temporal and mutable. Fascinating stuff. Well worth meditating on at your leisure. Section 18. God's eternity. Eternity is a duration without beginning and without end, without sooner and later. Uh, quote, permanent now. End quote. Nunz stands. The essence of eternity is the absolute lack of succession. Boethius gave the classical definition. 
and the Latin is there. Eternity is the perfect and simultaneous total possession of interminable life. That's worth reading again. Eternity is the perfect and simultaneous total possession of interminable life. Wow. From eternity, in the strict sense, must be distinguished the evum, or the eviternitas, that is, the duration of the created spirits, which have indeed a beginning, but no end, and which, in their substance, are subject to no mutation. The angels, uh, this is talking about the created spirits. I wonder if our souls are, I wonder what the relation is between the human soul and the angels. I'll, I'll get to that eventually in this book. There must be some overlap between our spiritual souls and the uh, angels. I'm not sure how much overlap there is. I know there's significant differences. Here we have a dogma. God is eternal. This is a de fide dogma. God is eternal. The dogma asserts that God possesses the divine being without beginning and without end and without succession in a constant, undivided now. The symbolum quicumque declares Eternus pater, eternus filius, eternus spiritus sanctus et temen non tres eterni, sed unus eternus. Eternal Father, Eternal Son, Eternal Holy Ghost, and yet not three eternal beings, but one. That's the translation of that Latin. The Fourth Lateran Council and the Vatican Council attribute to God the predicate eternal, eternus. Holy Writ bears witness to the individual grounds of the divine eternity. The negation of being and end is expressed in Psalm 89.2, quote, Before the mountains were made, or the earth and the world were formed, from eternity to eternity, thou art God, end quote. The absolute lack of succession is seen in Psalm 2.7, quote, The Lord hath said to me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, end quote. John 8.58, quote, Before Abraham was made, I am, end quote. And references are given to Psalm 101.27 and following Psalm 89.4 and 2 Peter 3.8 if you want to look those up at your leisure. The fathers, in their conflict with the heathen world, familiar with the genealogies of gods, expressly attest God's eternity. There they put gods in uh, small g for gods, the way I do it. Earlier in the same reading, they had uh, gods with a large g, which I objected to. So I'll start again. The fathers, in their conflict with the heathen world, familiar with the genealogy as of gods, expressly, expressly attested God's eternity. Compare Aristides and Tatian, Athenagoras, Athenagoras, I guess they say, Saint Irenaeus, and uh, Saint Augustine says that God's eternity is a constant present. Quote, the eternity of God is his essence itself, which has nothing mutable in it. In it there is nothing past, as if it were no longer, nothing future, as if it had not yet been. In it there is, there is only is, that is, the present. 
Moving on, section 19, the immensity or immeasurability of God and his omnipresence. Immensity or spacelessness connotes the negation of spatial limitation. Omnipresence expresses the relation of God to real space. Immeasurability is a negative and absolute attribute. Omnipresence is a positive and relative one. One, God's immensity. God is immense or absolutely immeasurable. This is a de fide dogma. God is immense or absolutely immeasurable. The symbol quicumque teaches, and the Latin is given, Father immense, Son immense, Holy Spirit immense, and yet not three immense beings but one. Has a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? The Fourth Lateran Council and the Vatican Council apply to God the attribute immeasurable, immensus. Holy Writ bears with witness to the sublimity of God over all spatial measure. The universe does not suffice to encompass him. 3 Kings 8.27, quote, For if heaven and the heavens above, <coughs> quote, For if heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built, end quote. And Isaiah 66, 1, quote, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool, end quote. Compare Job 11, 7, and 9. The fathers call God incomprehensible, uncircumscribed, immeasurable. Achoritos, aperigraptos, aperigraptos, immensus incircumscriptus. Compare Pastor Herme. And whatever that is, whoever that is, quote, for the very first thing, believe that there is only one God who encompasses everything while he alone cannot be encompassed, end quote. Compare Athenagoras, St. <clears throat> Irenaeus. Those references are there if you want to look them up at your leisure. Speculatively, the immeasurability of God is to be based on his infinite fullness of being. This permits no limitation, including limitation of space. Two, God's omnipresence. A, reality of God's omnipresence. Here we have a dogma. God is everywhere present in created space. This is a de fide dogma. God is everywhere present in created space. God's omnipre omnipresence is an object of regular and general teaching and is contained in the dogma of the infinity of God as the part is contained in the whole. Holy Writ describes the omnipresence of God in picturesque language in Psalm 138.7 and following, quote, Whither shall I go before thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee before thy face? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I descend into hell, thou art present. If I take my wings early in the morning and dwell in the uppermost parts of the sea, even there also shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me, end quote. Jeremiah 23, 24, quote, I, do I not fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord, end quote. Acts, 27, uh, Acts 17, 27 and following, quote, God is not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and are, end quote. <clears throat> you can see Deuteronomy 4, 39, Wisdom 7, 24, and Wisdom 8, 1. From God's omnipresence, St. Clement of Rome concludes to the fear of him. 
Quote, where shall one flee and how shall one escape him who spans the all? End quote. See Corinthians 28.4. Compare Theophilus of Antioch, Minucius Felix, Octavius, St. Cyprian. You can look up those references if you feel like it. The first monograph on the substantial presence of God in the whole world and in all the parts thereof and on the indwelling of God in the just was written by St. Augustine in his Liber de Presentia Dei Ad Dardanum. I have the complete works of St. Augustine on my Kindle. One of these days I'll get around to reading all of it. I've read the Confessions, the Enchiridion, and the City of God, and parts of other works, but he has a lot of books to get through. Hope to get through them in this lifetime. St. Thomas speculatively bases the omnipresence of God on his all-causality. As the origin of being, he is intrinsically present in everything, as long as it exists. B. More exact determination of the omnipresence. Since the time of Petrus Lombardus, Peter Lombard, theologians more closely determine the omnipresence of God as a presence according to power, dynamic presence, according to knowledge, ideal presence, and according to essence, essential or substantial presence. Through this essence, he is present substantially in all things, including the created spiritual essences, angels, demons, and human souls. So here we have the partial answer to my question. There is an overlap between, uh, that exists among the angels, the demons, and the human souls, these created spiritual essences. So I'll start that phrase over again. Through his essence, through this essence, he is present substantially in all things, including the, cre including the created spiritual essences, as the immediate origin of their existence. The substantial omnipresence of God is to be more closely defined as a repletive presence, that is, the whole divine essence fills the whole created space and every one of its parts. On account of the absolute simplicity of God, however, the repletive omnipresence must not be conceived of as an infinite extension, expansion or diffusion, of the divine substance. So we have to be careful we don't make that mistake. We have to remember the divine simplicity of God. In addition to this general natural presence of God, there is also a special supernatural presence or indwelling of God by the supernatural efficacy of his grace in the soul of the just man. See John 14, 23, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, and 1 Corinthians 6, 19. In the house of God and in heaven. Those references are Psalm 131, 13 and following, and for God's presence in heaven, Matthew 6, 9. The indwelling of God in the humanity of Christ on the basis of the hypostatic union is unique. See Colossians 2.9, quote, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead corporeally, corporally, end quote. I will leave it there. We are on chapter 2, Attributes of the Divine Life. Chapter 2, Attributes of the Divine life. Let me find that in the 
table of contents. So we just did the immensity or immeasurability of God and his omnipresence. And now we're going to next time look at chapter two, the attributes of the divine life. So putting that into context, that is book one, section three, chapter two. So that's where we're going to start next time. I think I just got an email from Nick Krisik, so I'll probably have him on today, hopefully. Uh, if not, I'll continue uh, refuting the 500 arguments against uh, atheism. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being here. Take care of yourselves, and we'll talk soon. God bless.